Well, I want to begin by reminding us of the reason why we gather together Sunday after Sunday. We might ask, what is the goal of the Sunday gathering for Redeemer Church? Well, the goal is for us to continue growing with God's help in our understanding of his word. Not just in what God says to us, but why he says it and how it applies to our lives. Because this is true for you this morning, whether you are a believer in Christ or not. God's word applies to you. And not just that, but he speaks into every area of your life. None of us can escape this reality that only God has the authority to tell us what is true. And so that means the stakes are higher than we can possibly imagine. Nothing short of life and death that we would listen to what he has said to us. And this is why Paul spills so much ink in this letter telling us that nothing is more vital for the church than what we are being taught. And one of the clues Paul gives us to see this is how often the theme of teaching shows up in this letter. The word for teaching appears 16 times, and it's a key theme in all six chapters of the letter. Remember back to what Paul said to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 16. He doesn't say, hey, Timothy, you should probably be vaguely aware of what's being taught in the church. No, he commands him, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so nothing demands more of our attention. It's a matter of souls being rescued by the true teaching of God or ruined by the false teaching of men. And in light of this, our goal this morning is to set our sights on who it is that the Lord has entrusted to lead his people. First Timothy 5 reintroduces us to the men that we saw back in chapter 3, the church's elders. And whether for good or for ill, the Ephesians, uh, those that Timothy was pastoring, they were being influenced by the teaching of their leaders either deepening in the faith or departing from it. And the same is true for Christ's church today. And this is why the church needs faithful elders, those who will guard the gospel and who will lead the church to embrace its calling back from chapter 3 to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Or just like Paul exhorts Timothy in his second letter, what you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so we see that faithfulness in leadership is not optional, and it comes at a great cost for the elders themselves and for the church as a whole. And so I've titled this morning's sermon, The Cost of Leadership, The Cost of of leadership. If you're able, please stand with me as I read this morning's passage for us. And 
And as I read, I want you to look for the answer to this question. What is faithful leadership worth? What is faithful leadership worth? First Timothy 5, beginning in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. And so also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under the yoke as bondservants regard their masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, I hope to help us see that there is a price to pay in having faithful leaders, and it is worth everything. It's worth everything. And so if we're to sum up this passage in one sentence, it would go something like this. Don't underestimate the value of faithful leadership. Don't underestimate the value of faithful leadership. And for leadership to be faithful, it must conform to God's standards. We could say his rules for leadership. And these rules apply to both the leaders themselves and those under their leadership. And there are two kinds of leaders Paul is concerned about in our passage this morning. And that's elders and employers. We'll begin in verse 17 through 25 by looking at the rules for elders. So that's point number one, the rules for elders. And here's the first of the three rules. Rule number one, support generously. Support generously. And we'll see this in verses 17 and 18. From the beginning of our passage, the Apostle Paul continues instilling in us this conviction That faithfulness is worthy of honor. We saw this earlier in the chapter with the church's call to honor faithful widows. And now he calls us to honor faithful elders. And when he mentions the elders who rule well, he's referring to their faithfulness in leadership. 
He's not talking about a kind of kingly authority where the elders rule over the congregation like their subjects. Far be it from the church of Jesus Christ to have that kind of faithless leadership. That dishonors the name of Christ, the one who is the true king of his church. But there's another verse in this letter that helps us understand more of what what Paul's saying here. Back in chapter 3, Paul described men who would be qualified for this office as those who manage, that's the same word, their own households well. And then Paul asked this question to draw out what this management looks like. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So the two go hand in hand. And what's true for leadership in the home is true in the church. The leaders that God desires are caring shepherds that faithfully guide and guard the sheep. Because they model their leadership after the good shepherd who we heard about earlier this morning. The one who lays down his life for the sheep. And so the personal cost required for faithful leadership is unavoidable. And as Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 5.17, this stems from the two main tasks of the church's elders, oversight and teaching. And those who are faithful in these things are worth supporting generously. Or as Paul has said, worthy of double honor. Now let's talk about what this does mean and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that pastors have the right to demand a big paycheck. That's not what Paul is saying. Even within 1 Timothy itself, Paul has strong words for those who are motivated by money and riches. Or as he puts it in chapter 6, verse 5, those who imagine that godliness is a means of gain. So then what does this mean? Well, it means that faithful elders who labor in preaching and teaching deserve a special kind of honor because laboring in the word is hard work. And it's no secret that in our own church, no one knows this better than Ryan. In a different way than the rest of our elders, he is laboring in the word for us week in and week out. And even as his fellow elders, it's our desire to show him special honor for this labor in the word. We're not exempt from the call to show honor to one another as we serve together. And for our church as a whole, one of the best ways that we could support Ryan, who carries most of this load in preaching and teaching, is through the gift of generous encouragement. So I would encourage you next time the Lord blesses you through one of Ryan's sermons, make an intentional effort to say to him, brother, thank you for laboring in the word for me this week. You could remind him of 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight: Keep abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, don't underestimate the value of faithful encouragement. This helps your elders remember that though faithfulness comes at a great cost, it's not without reward. And to illustrate this, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now, a couple Wednesdays ago, I caught Mickey 
sneaking some brownie crumbs while he was serving dessert at midweek manna. Busted. And after I jokingly confronted him about it, I said, hey, you know, I'm not about to muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain. So I encouraged Mickey to enjoy the fruit of his faithful labor. Now, obviously, this verse really means a whole lot more than that. And thankfully for us, Paul quotes this same verse in 1 Corinthians 9, where he gives more space to explaining what it means for church leaders. In 1 Corinthians 9, 14, after he's quoted this same verse, Paul writes, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so, beloved, the Lord desires that faithful labor is rewarded. And the way that a church provides for its pastors should enable them to devote themselves as much as possible to the ministry of the word. Ideally, that this would be the way that they earn a living for themselves and for their families. Now, these verses would be really uncomfortable for me to preach if I didn't think that our church was faithfully caring for its pastors. By God's grace, I believe that the saints of Redeemer excel in this area. And as someone who directly benefits from this support, I want you to know how thankful I am for each of you. You haven't just been generous to us in your giving, but you've been generous in encouragement. And this is the kind of double honor that the Lord desires for his church. And this is a great gift, a gift that we do not take for granted. But far above our personal gratitude, the Lord is glorified through your generosity in both of these ways. And this is one of the main indicators of the value that this church assigns to faithful leadership. Which also means it's one of the main ways that we guard ourselves from undervaluing faithful leadership. But this isn't the only rule that helps guard us in this way. Because the price we're willing to pay to have faithful leaders isn't just about being willing to commend labor, but also being willing to confront sin. And that brings us to rule number two. Take sin seriously. Take sin seriously. And Paul begins in verse 19 with a call to discernment. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. What he's saying is be careful what you believe. Paul was aware, likely from his own personal experience, that leaders will face accusations. This is one aspect of the cost of leadership. But since not all accusations are valid, multiple witnesses are needed. We've all heard the phrase, there's strength in numbers. And there's truth in this when it comes to dealing with sin in the church's elders. And in general, when more people start having the same concerns with an elder, this escalates the need to deal with it. This rule helps protect the church from moving too quickly on something that might not be true and also protects the elder's reputation from being unnecessarily damaged. So if we take sin seriously, we must weigh accusations carefully. 
This leads us to become more confident in discerning actual sin from perceived sin. Now that said, Paul clearly does not believe that elders are in any way above being confronted for sin. As one author has said, the elders don't stand above the church. They're called out from among its members and they're held accountable to it. In other words, the elders are not immune to church discipline. And 1 Timothy 5 really is a lot like Matthew 18, except specifically applied to elders. Look with me again at verse 19 and 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But here's the next step. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. So it's a witness to the whole congregation of the seriousness of sin. And this idea of persisting in sin implies there have been opportunities along the way for that elder to repent from sin after being confronted for it. This situation in 1 Timothy 5 is the church's last resort in disciplining an elder. And just like any other Christian, for an elder who would persist in sin... The goal must always be repentance and restoration. This must be true even when it reaches this final step of public rebuke. And what we see in this rule is even more of the cost of faithful leadership. In this case, the cost required by fellow elders and required by the members of the church. Because this is really where the rubber meets the road. We have to ask ourselves, what price are we willing to pay to have faithful leaders? Will we take sin seriously, doing whatever it takes to call them back to faithfulness if they fall? Do we really understand the cost of not having faithful leaders? Because don't just think that these are Paul's rules for the Ephesians. No, these come directly from the Lord himself. Verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And here's one of the clearest themes in 1 Timothy, that whatever the church does on earth, It is seen from heaven. So we could say that the most important witnesses are not actually the earthly witnesses, but the heavenly ones. In this case, when an elder is rebuked in the presence of the church, ultimately, he's being rebuked in the presence of God himself. And this adds an infinitely greater weight to the value of faithful leadership and gives us the reason why we cannot underestimate it. We can't underestimate it because the Lord does not underestimate it. He commands his church to not show partiality towards its leaders, sweeping sin under the rug because they are in a position of authority. I can tell you I've witnessed this personally and it destroys the church. 
And at Redeemer, we believe this is one of the safeguards of elder-led congregationalism, where the congregation is empowered together to help hold their elders accountable to the Lord's rules for faithful leadership. Because here's the reality. No one, not even pastors, are exempt from accountability. As Eugene Peterson once said, every congregation is a congregation of sinners. As if that weren't bad enough, they all have sinners for pastors. So don't hear me say that pastors are expected to be perfect. But do hear me say that they are expected to be faithful. And we show how much we value faithful leadership when we take sin seriously. And to be clear, Paul's not calling us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. If you read the book of Galatians, you'll see in chapter 2 that Peter was publicly rebuked by Paul. Because Peter was, listen to this, out of step with the truth of the gospel. Now, thankfully, it's clear from the rest of Scripture that Peter received this rebuke by faith and he walked in repentance. But we're not promised that will always be the case. So if it becomes necessary, we must follow these rules that the Lord has laid out for us, trusting him with the results. And although there's no way to predict, to foresee, it's impossible, whether an elder will fall from faithfulness, this does give us good reasons to patiently consider who we appoint to leadership. That brings us to rule number three, verses 22 through 25. Choose carefully. Choose carefully. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So when the church finds itself in desperate need for more leaders, and that's a common situation, this can't be at the expense of having faithful ones. And here's what Paul is telling us. We should care so much about who's leading the church that we would rather wait longer with faith than rush forward without faith. Or we could say we must be sure that we've watched them before they are entrusted to watch over others. And so as far as we are able, we must choose carefully. Because the consequences that could come from appointing leaders too quickly are impossible to number. And this is likely what Timothy was experiencing in the church of Ephesus. He was experiencing false teaching and godless doctrine spreading rampantly through the church. And where was it coming from? It was coming from faithless leaders. These are the kinds of leaders that never should have been appointed in the first place. And no doubt these faithless leaders would have brought a great deal of stress to young Timothy. As it would to any pastor in any church. And as one commentator has suggested, this is a possible explanation for Paul's strange advice in verse 23, that Timothy should use a little wine for the sake of his stomach and his frequent ailments. 
Now, we can't know for sure whether or not these leaders were the cause of Timothy's health problems. But I think we could say that they certainly could have contributed to them. And what that means is that on one level, choosing the wrong leaders can bring real physical consequences. But far more devastating are the spiritual consequences. As we see in verse 22 and on, they pose a great threat to the church's purity, inviting others to follow them to their own destruction. Verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, that means clear or obvious, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. And here's where leadership has an eternal cost. One way or another, a leader who is faithless will bring unrepentant sin with them into judgment. Even sins that are hidden in this life will not remain hidden in the next. But on the flip side, leaders who will remain faithful bring their good works with them. Even those things that were done faithfully behind the scenes, things that no one will ever know about in this life. And so, beloved, we must choose carefully which leaders we will follow. Because in the end, the Lord will reward the faithful, but he will reveal the faithless. And of course, this doesn't just apply to leaders, but to every human being who has ever lived. And I hope we are all sobered by this truth this morning, that no one gets away with their sin in the end. As Proverbs 10.9 says, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. But he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. It's a promise. All sin that is concealed will be revealed. And the question is, when it is revealed? And if you are not trusting in Christ this morning, I want you to wrestle with this question. Will you reveal your sin in this life through repentance and faith in Christ and be saved by him forever? Or will he be the one to reveal your sin on the last day, only for you to be separated from him forever? I hope you see what's at stake. It's life or death, heaven or hell. But thanks be to God, there is good news. And we heard it in our scripture reading earlier, that Jesus, the good shepherd, he came that you may have life and have it abundantly. And he's only able to offer this life because he laid down his own life, dying on the cross for sin. And he came back from the dead three days later as the only one who could achieve victory over sin. And so he has provided the only way for us to be saved. And if you could ask Paul himself, he would tell you from his own personal experience that Jesus Christ is faithful to save any sinner who would turn to him in faith. Amen? And just like he did for Paul, Christ will wash you with his overflowing grace and mercy. 
This forgiveness can be yours. If you would do what we sang right before the sermon, if you would turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embrace, it was there the Son of God gave his life for us and our measureless debt was erased. And this is the glorious message that God has entrusted to his leaders in the church. And beloved, this is why we cannot underestimate the value of faithful leaders who continue proclaiming this gospel. Because the cost of straying from this gospel is far too great. It's the only way that we can offer hope to the watching world. And the Lord isn't just concerned about how we value faithful leadership inside the church, but also outside the church. Specifically, in the workplace. This brings us to the second and final group of leaders in our passage, and that is employers. It's point number two, the rules for employers. In chapter six, verses one through two, rule number one, act honorably. Act honorably. Even those who find themselves in the most humbling kind of service Imaginable, like that of a bondservant that we see in this passage. They are to show honor to their employers. Now, just as a brief note here, we don't know all the details about what slavery would have looked like in Timothy's day. But it likely wasn't identical to slavery in America. What comes to mind when we hear the word slave? And the Bible certainly is not condoning the practice of slavery. In fact, in this letter itself, in chapter 1, Paul condemns enslavers. Those who kidnapped rather than hired their servants. And so that said, this type of employment had to be common enough in Timothy's day for Paul to include it in this letter. And to represent employment generally. And the connection to the rest of the passage is clear. Church members should honor their elders. Employees should honor their employers. And the reason for this call to act honorably is really striking. If you look at the end of verse 1, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And so the reputation of the Lord and his word isn't just at stake in the church, but in the community. The teaching that we receive in the church bears results in the workplace, whether for good or for bad. And to put it simply, Christians who don't honor their employers, in reality, dishonor God. Because that word reviled is the same word for blaspheme. Right? Acting in such a way that employers are blaspheming God, saying, if that's what a Christian is like, I hate that God. So next time you feel undervalued or even mistreated by your boss, remember this. God's name and God's word are at stake. And why wouldn't that drastically change how we respond? As one author has said, the place where we work is, for most of us, our primary contact with a needy world. So when you're in the office tomorrow, Or in that meeting or conference call, ask yourself, 
How can I go out of my way to honor my superiors? And is my heart displaying an attitude that has been changed by the power of the gospel? Because whether we realize it or not, our actions in the workplace display what we truly believe. You've heard the saying, actions speak louder than words. Or to give it even more biblical weight, we will be recognized by our fruit. So we must believe no matter where the Lord has placed us, he has placed us there to honor those that we serve under. And here's what's different about leaders in the workplace as opposed to leaders in the church. We are called to show them honor whether they are faithful or not. And that requires the Lord's strength. Remember WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus, the God-man, took the form of a servant. And he was more greatly humbled than we could ever possibly imagine. And yet he never, not once, dishonored God or his word. And so with his example in mind, make this a regular prayer in your work in this new year. Lord, help me honor your name and your word through my service today. We all desperately need his help. And of course, all of these things are still true, even if your employer happens to be a believer. They are certainly still worthy of respect, as Paul turns to next, in verse 2. Rule number 2, serve respectfully. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now here's what this boils down to. If you work for a believer, this doesn't give you the right to be lax in your work. Don't be deceived into thinking, ah, it'll be fine. He'll cut me slack because we share faith in Christ, right? No. Paul's telling us that serving under faithful employers actually gives us even more reason to bless them with respect. At the end of verse 2, rather they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. The New Testament has lots of clear teaching on how believers build one another up in the church. And why would that not also influence our relationships in the workplace? Believers who serve under believing employers must agree with what Calvin once said on this verse, that we are bound to them by brotherly love, and we are partakers of the same grace. Employees that are faithful, that truly are motivated by love, will actively seek to benefit and bless their employers. And of course, as we all know, to act honorably, to serve respectfully, really is basic to all relationships. But when it comes to the workplace, these rules protect us from underestimating the value of faithful leadership. Because in both the church and the workplace, Faithful leaders are especially worthy of honor and respect. And as a whole, this passage in 1 Timothy provides us with a fresh vision of the cost 
of leadership, both for the leaders themselves and for those following them. Because in today's world, even in the church, this kind of leadership is more rare than we think to have leadership that is truly faithful according to God's word. And so when the Lord is gracious to put faithful leaders over us, we cannot take this for granted. And if we are truly committed to faithful leadership, we will only grow to value it more and more. Because there's simply too much at stake to settle for anything less than faithfulness. And thankfully, we all serve under the most faithful leader who has ever lived, the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. So may we trust in him alone to instill more of his faithfulness in us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you that you are the perfect Savior, the perfect leader of your people who have left us with a perfect example to follow in. Oh, Lord, and we will follow in that example imperfectly in countless ways. So would you please, by your spirit, give us strength to follow you more faithfully, to look to your example, to cling to your word. And I pray that for those this morning who are not trusting in you, Lord, that they, that they would see the beauty of of trusting in Christ and not in trusting in themselves. Lord, because your leadership is the only kind of leadership that is worth following. So we trust all of this to you. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.